Chair in the air. How's everybody doing this morning? Wow, thank you, Andy, for that unbelievable uh, welcome. I just think Andy Bird may be one of the greatest human beings to ever, ever breathe air on planet Earth. Can we thank God for Andy and the entire leadership team? Wow, what a legend. It's hard not to sit under this tent and imagine the eternal implications of what has taken place just under this tent as a result of your faithfulness and obedience, Andy. And so to you and the whole team, I could not have a higher level of admiration or respect for you. You challenge me, not just in what you do, but in who you are. And your love for God, your devotion to Christ, your spiritual depth is so profound and, and takes me to another level in my own faith and stretches me. So one more time, let's give it up for Andy and the entire crew. Just amazing. <clears throat> I am definitely excited to be here to impart some, some things to you these next couple of days and also just to get to dream with some of the crew here at Fire and Fragrance and University of the Nations on what might be possible as we turn and face the world together. So this is a significant time. I believe that God marked these days uh, before the foundations of the earth, and God's about to do something very, very special. Well, like Lindsay said, I have a, uh, a wife named Lindsay, and I have two boys, Mason and Jude. They're five and two years old. I wish I could have brought them here. If you would have met them, it would have been the highlight of your year for sure, arguably your entire life. They're, they're absolutely incredible, and uh, they love coming out here, so we hopefully get to get him out here in a future visit, but uh, Lindsay says hello. She wished she could be here. She was able to be with us last time, and she's absolutely incredible, but my wife and I live in Orange County, California, and so we just took the, uh, took the nonstop out of LA last night and so pumped to be here in Kona. The rain's coming down. The cool breeze is blowing. God has set this morning up. How many people can feel it already? <laughs> It's going to be good. Did you come hungry for God's word this morning? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you that eye has never seen, ear has never heard. It's never even entered the heart of humanity, what you have prepared for us who love you. So Holy Spirit, we open up our hearts and we ask you to come and encounter us today. Lord, we thank you that you didn't come to make bad people good. You came to make dead people alive. And I thank you that as your word is proclaimed, you are calling forth the eternal purposes of God over each and every person in the building. May we never be the same again in the name of Jesus and everybody said. Amen. One of the most striking statements Jesus makes in my estimation is the words, the harvest is vast, but the workers are few. Can we say that together? The harvest is vast, but the workers are few. Now when I hear this saying of Jesus, I'm not so surprised or amazed by the first half of Jesus' statement, the harvest is vast. You know, in 1924, there were 2 billion people alive on planet Earth. 2 billion people in 1924. In the fall of 2011, we surpassed 7 billion in global population. So that means in the span of less than 100 years, the population of the human race has more than tripled. And as you begin to uncover the spiritual and religious composition, you quickly discover that 2 billion of those 7 billion call themselves Christians, and 3 billion of those 7 billion have never heard a clear gospel 
message. And what's more surprising than that is one half of those three billion, most missiologists will agree, 1.5 billion have never even heard the word Jesus. Isn't it extraordinary to consider that with all of our advances in technology and communication, with all the modern communication avenues and streams, still 1.5 billion people have never heard his name. And I think it's incumbent upon us as God's people to wrestle with, there's the picture, came a little bit late, but you got it now. I told you it have been the highlight of your year for sure. <clears throat> Just keep rolling. There we go. There's the few. All right, cool. I think it's incumbent upon us as the people of God to wrestle with the difficult, challenging question. And that is, what is the fate of those 3 billion and certainly those 1.5 billion who have never heard his name? I think if we were to be honest, and even intellectually honest as we read the scriptures, we would have to conclude that the default destination of every human being is not heaven. Scripture explains to us that when Adam sinned, the disease of sin entered the human race. And in the Old Testament, the way that God dealt with sin and the people escaped his judgment from sin was the blood of bulls and goats applied to an altar. But the writer of Hebrews explains to us that there's now a new covenant. And this new covenant, covenant voids, replaces, and cancels out the old one. And it's no longer the blood of, of a bull or goat, but it's the blood of the eternal Lamb of God, Jesus. Not applied to a physical altar, but applied to the altar of our hearts through faith. And when God looks down and sees that blood applied to our hearts, we receive forgiveness of skin and, and forgiveness of sin and escape his judgment against our sin. And I think it's incumbent upon us as the people of God to grapple with and wrestle with the difficult question. What is the fate of those who have never heard, who have never called on his name, never had that blood applied to the altar of their hearts? You know, the scripture says in John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We all know John 3.16, but sometimes we fail to continue reading to verse 17. Where Jesus said, for the son of man did not come to condemn the world. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to tell the world how bad they are. But then he continues, because the world is already condemned. I think if we were to be honest, we'd have to conclude that humanity is born into a death sentence. So when Jesus makes the statement, the harvest is vast, that's not the striking part this morning. For me, the striking part is the second half of his statement. But the workers, they are few. Apparently in every generation, there have always been a group of people whom Jesus calls the few that have chosen to exchange their life for the first half of Jesus' statement, this vast harvest. This morning in our opening session, I simply want to ask and answer one question, and that is who are the few? Who are the few in this generation, and what do they live for? Number one, they see the world differently. 
You're probably familiar of the story in the Gospels where Jesus breaks cultural and traditional norms by passing through Samaritan territory. And he approaches a woman who's drawing water from a well. He asks that woman for a drink of water. This woman is shocked that she, a woman, and a Samaritan, and a Gentile, is being approached and spoken directly to by Jesus, a male and a Jewish man. And she's struck that he's speaking to her, and she says, I, I can't believe you're asking me for a drink. And Jesus essentially says, I could give you water that would make you never thirsty again. And then he begins to detail the situation surrounding her life and tells her, I know that you're five times divorced and living with a man who's not your husband. I know that you've been looking for love and searching for love, and I could satisfy the deepest needs and longings in your heart. And this woman is so impacted by this conversation with Christ that she rushes back to her hometown and incites a bit of a revival in her hometown. Well, after this exchange, the disciples approach Jesus and they say, Lord, what are we having for lunch? And Jesus responds in John 4, 35, and he says, do not say there are four more months, and then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes, for the fields are already white for harvest. Now, can you imagine asking Jesus what the lunch plans are? And he responds with these words. But you get what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you don't get it. This Samaritan woman, whom you concluded was helpless, whom you'd label as filthy and dirty and a pagan, was one simple conversation with me away from total life transformation. And then he says, lift up your eyes because the whole world is ready right now as well. See, most people, they look at the world, they look at the Muslim Middle East and they say there's no hope for change. They look at Hindu India and they say there's no possible way India could come to Christ. They look at the high schools and universities across America and they say there's no hope, but not the few. See, the few see the world differently. In fact, when they look at the world, they have a conviction that the whole world is ready to come to Christ right now. I had a friend that grew up on a farm and he, in college. He said, Dominic, I wish I could describe to you what it was like every year when the harvest became white. He said, you'd walk outside and everywhere you could look, you could see the white just kind of blowing in the wind. And he said, but the thing about the harvest becoming white is, is that it was a signal that it had reached the final point of readiness. And he said, it was actually so easy to harvest the crop when it became white. But if you didn't harvest it in time, it would fall to the ground and die and become worthless. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, won't you see the whole world is ready right now. It's easy. Don't say four more months. Don't say in a decade. Don't say in 20 years and 30 years and 40 years. Maybe the Muslim world will open up. Maybe Hindu India will open up. Maybe in future generations it will happen. Jesus is saying to us, they're ready right now. I'll never forget when we first approached Honduras and two weeks before One Nation One Day, I got a call from the U.S. Embassy in Honduras. They brought me in for a meeting. They said, Mr. Russo, we hear you're planning to bring 
this team into the nation of Honduras. Don't you know this is the most violent nation in the world per capita? This is irresponsible. It's wrong what you're doing. You can't bring this team here at this time. And I, he said, why don't you wait three years or, or five years? Wait for things to calm down in the nation. There's just been a coup in 2009, and there's still such unrest in the country. But we had a conviction that Honduras was ready right now. And so we came back. I met with the team. I said, guys, we have to keep our team safe. I, in fact, I don't want so much as a stolen cell phone from our team. But at the same time, we can't let this stop what God wants to do. So I came back to the Honduran government and I said, could I meet with the commander of the military, the, the national chief of police? And we sat down in a meeting and I said, would you provide us 300 full-time military personnel to escort our teams throughout the week. I said, would you put full-time security in front of and behind every bus and outside of every hotel? They said, Mr. Russo, absolutely. And the missions team for eight solid days had military escort, police escort everywhere they went. We didn't have so much as a stolen cell phone. And almost every single law enforcement official or or, or our military personnel was coming to Christ throughout the week and throughout the entire campaign. <clears throat> see, the few, number one, they see the world differently. Number two, they live for a moment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I want you to look at this scripture 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, we must all appear before, and then Paul uses this phrase, the judgment seat. The judgment seat actually comes from the single Greek word, bema, B-E-M-A. And Paul actually borrows this word, bema, from the Roman judicial system. The word bema literally translated means an elevated platform. And Paul drags that image into the scripture. And, he, and, and what would happen is when, when people would go into a Roman court, they would actually step up on this bema. And they would stand before the judge and the members of the court. And they would look into the case. And at that moment, they would issue their ruling or their determination. And Paul actually drags that image into the scripture. And he says, I want you to be crystal clear. Every single, every single believer, every single follower of Christ, when their life is over, will stand on the Bema. They will stand on that judgment seat, and they will face Christ. And at that moment, he will look into their life. He will see how they exchanged their days, how they ordered their values and priorities. And at that moment, he will issue his rewards. And I'll tell you, the few are obsessed with the thought of this moment. And in fact, everything they do, they filter through the lens of this reality. They establish their life goals. They create their values. They order their life through the lens of this moment. In fact, they're living for this moment when they will stand on that bema, on that judgment seat before the Lord. Who are the few? Number one, they see the world differently. Number two, they're actually living for a single moment. I'll never forget 
the first time I met Lindsay and last time, I think the first time I was here, I was able to share this story that Kona has some significance for me. I was originally from southeastern Michigan, Metro Detroit. I had just graduated from Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'd moved back to Detroit. Any ORU peeps in the house? What's up, what's up? So we were just, um, we were just back to, I was just back to Detroit and I got an, an invitation to come speak at a conference in Hawaii and it happened to be in Kona. Now when you're from Detroit and you get invited to speak to a conference in Hawaii, how many people know you don't have to pray about that? So that was an easy yes. And I'll, I'll never forget taking that long flight over the Pacific from Detroit to L.A. and, and over and uh, landing here in Kona. We were actually at the Hilton Waikoloa right down, right up the street. And as you know, the Hilton Waikoloa, if you've been there, has five towers. And all these towers are um, connected by covered paths and little waterways and you could either walk the covered paths or you could take the little boats and I'll never forget after the long journey I wanted to grab something to eat so I sat down at one of the patios there and I was alone and I was single all four years in college and was good with it God was downloading my future and I just graduated six months prior and and I'm sitting on this um on this little patio area and all of a sudden this little boat pulls up near the area where I'm sitting and off the boat steps Lindsay, and as God is my witness, she begins to walk towards me in slow motion, just like the movies. I mean, it was crazy, and the first thought I ever think when I see Lindsay is now, this is the type of girl I'd like to marry, and I have to be honest, at this point, it has nothing to do with her personality. She's just totally and completely taking my breath away, and I finally muster up the courage to, to talk to her, and and we actually got to get to know each other this entire week while we we're at this conference in this beautiful Hawaiian paradise. And she flies back to her hometown in Kansas City. I fly back to my hometown in Detroit. And she's still a freshman at Kansas State University. And she, being at a secular state university, that's something we didn't have at ORU. She has, she's involved in a sorority. Now... I didn't know much about sororities, but as she begins to explain it to me, what I learn is whenever there's sororities, there's also fraternities. And I can't help but think to myself, while I'm in Detroit, that all those frat guys are going to be going after Lindsay. And I think to myself, I have got to stay in front of this girl. How many guys know what I'm talking about? So I start taking flights down to Kansas City. She starts taking flights up to Detroit. And... Um, some of you guys will, will appreciate this, but there's quite a sticker shock when you transition from single to dating. And suddenly everything doubles in price. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, I've just started in the ministry. I, I've, I'm just six months out. And, you know, most guys, when they take a girl out, they have to pay for dinner and the movie. And before I even open the door to begin, I'm a flight down. And, I find myself, I was sitting in the back of, of my home church on a Wednesday night. I bury my face in my hands. I said, Lord, I, I believe you did bring this girl into my life, but how am I going to finance this relationship? And I'm literally feeling like overwhelmed. And, and I say to the Lord, you know, I know there's a principle in the Bible. It's not a magic formula, but it is a truth. And that is whatever I give to you, you give back to me in a multiplied form. And I said, Lord, I want to take the average cost of a round-trip flight to and from Kansas City. 
on Delta Airlines, the only airline that flew nonstop Detroit to Kansas City. And it's $300. And I said, Lord, I'm going to give you this $300 that I really don't have. And I'm just going to ask you, would you somehow, someway, supernaturally bless my travel to and from Kansas City? Put it in the offering and, and kind of moved on. And after the service ended, this businessman came running up to me. He said, Dominic, I couldn't wait for the service to be over. He said, I felt like the entire time the Holy Spirit was shouting in my ear, telling me I had to give you this. Does this mean anything to you? He gives me this envelope. I open it up and it's $300 cash. I said, this absolutely means something to me. Thank you so much. And two weeks later, I'm sitting in church on a Sunday morning and a, another business leader taps me on the shoulder. He said, Dominic, I don't know why, but I, through the entire worship set, I felt the Holy Spirit shouting in my ear that I'm supposed to start giving you Delta frequent flyer miles. Does this mean anything to you? I said, this absolutely means something to me. And he began through the entirety of our dating relationship transferring tens of thousands of frequent flyer miles into my account. And probably 12 of the next 15 months, I was able to see Lindsay. I think I paid for one, maybe two flights. And, and, uh, and it was just absolutely amazing. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 10, 39. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus takes it up a level. He says, I don't care necessarily just about your, your, 300, your dumb $300. He says, I'm actually looking for your whole life. See, the, the, the majority, the many, they look at their life and they sort of compartmentalize it. They say, Lord, you could have my time. You could have my relationships, but you can't have my money fearing that whatever they've given to Jesus, they've lost. Or they say, Lord, you can have my money, but you can't have my relationships. Or you, you, can, you can have my relationships, but you can't have my time. Fearing that whatever they've given to Jesus, they have lost. But the few have discovered the secret. That whatever they give to Christ, he actually gives back to them in a multiplied form. And for that reason, they freely lose their entire life. They say, Lord, you can have my time, my money, my relationships, my future, my goals, my plans, my dreams, my aspirations. Everything that I am, I give to you totally and completely. And you know what's amazing? They discover the life that everybody else yearns for. Jesus said, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Who are the few? Number three, they joyfully lose their life. And number four, they love until it hurts. I'll never forget speaking on the east coast of the United States seven or eight years ago. We were doing a youth conference all through the through the weekend, and when the service was over, the youth pastors brought us on the platform. They said, Dominic and Lindsay, you've poured out all weekend. We just want to pray for you and send you off. And this 14-year-old boy gathered around, and he began to raise his voice and pray. And he said, Lindsay, the Holy Spirit's telling me to tell you he's going to use you with orphans for the rest of your life. Well, just a week later, we were scheduled to lead a small team to India, and we arrived there in Kurnool, India, and while we were there on the ground, the whole week, Lindsay saying, Dominic, I want to go see an orphanage. I said, Lindsay, we're in a city 
with 30 Muslim mosques, 17 Hindu temples. We're being awakened by the call to prayer every morning. We're doing this outreach in the middle of the city. 10,000 Hindus are showing up every night. We're doing training for pastors in the morning. This is not a tour city. We have got to stay focused on why we've came, why we're here. And she said, Dominic, something struck me when that 14-year-old boy said those words. And in all these years we've been traveling together, I've never actually seen an orphanage. I feel like out of respect for that word, I at least need to go see one. And I could see she was serious. So we talked to our partners there in India. They said, absolutely. They actually brought her to the home of a pastor. She walked through the front door, out the back, and when she got to the backyard, she saw a small cement structure, probably about this size, this corner here. As she steps inside, she encounters 70 children sitting on the floor. She says to the pastor's wife, what are these children doing here? And the pastor's wife says, these are all full orphans. They have no father, no mother. They literally sleep on the streets. Her exact words were, they sleep under the shade of the palm trees. In that moment, the Holy Spirit speaks to Lindsay and says, I want you to build them a house. So she comes rushing back to the hotel that night. She said, Dominic, I've never heard more clearly from God in my entire life. I met these kids, and we are going to build them a house. Now, I didn't have the big emotional moment that she had just had. So, you know, I said, that's amazing, Lindsay. We're going to put this in the three- to five-year plan. She said, no, you don't get it. We're not waiting three or five years. This nerd is, this need is, Egypt, is, excuse me, this need is urgent. It's critical. We have got to build a house this year. I said, Lindsay, everything we've already committed to in 2011 will require divine intervention and miracles to pull off. There's no way we can add an entire construction project. She said, Dominic, I can't believe you. You always preach, if you make yourself available, God will make you capable. I said, well, that's true. So with literally only $20 set aside in the account, they're doing a groundbreaking ceremony, sending us the pictures. And all through that year, it was actually 2010. All through that year in 2010, we're pushing, we're stretching, we're fighting. It was by far the most difficult financial year we ever had in the ministry. I even had to get a $5,000 cash loan from one of our board members to finish furnishing the house. But I'll never forget getting there that December of that same year at Christmas time, cutting the ribbon, opening the door, and watching 50 kids run into this home that had never slept on a bed or a pillow in their entire life. The children are crying. Lindsay and I are crying. It's like the best day of our lives. And after this emotional, unbelievable day, our, our partners there in India pull us aside. They said, Dominic and Lindsay, it's so beautiful what you've done for the children of India. But you can't stop now. Next year, you need to build nine Angel House Rescue Orphanages. I said, nine? We almost went bankrupt building one. There's no way we could build nine. They said, there's 30 million orphans here in India. You can't. And, and I said, you know what? Off of the momentum of this first house, maybe we can build four. They said, no, you must build nine. I said, well, we'll pray about it. So it's now the beginning of a new year. Lindsay and I are praying. And Lindsay says, Dominic, I... I I feel like we need to build our own angel house. I said, you mean like raise the money for one? She said, no, out of our own finances. I said, Lindsay, I know I, I, I manage the money and everything and maybe don't bring you into the conversation enough, but at the moment, we can't fund a clean water well, let alone build an entire orphanage. She said, well, I think we need to just 
we need to pray and we need to see what God will do. And so we basically had a moment where we covenanted to God. We said, Lord, as you bring us the resource, we promise to give it back to you and build you an angel house rescue orphanage. 48 hours later, as God is my witness, Lindsay gets a phone call, and it's the executive producer of NBC's popular television game show, Minute to Win It. And the producer says, Lindsay, your friend Michelle's among 25,000 people who applied to be on our season two. Tell us, what would you do if you came on the show together and you won the $1 million? Lindsay said, I'll tell you exactly what I'd do. I'd build an angel house rescue orphanage. And she emails her a video of the dedication three weeks earlier. The producer begins to cry. She says, how soon could you be in Los Angeles? Lindsay said, as soon as you need me to. So she's on a pl plane to L.A. They, three weeks later. They fly 30 people out, but they pick Lindsay and Michelle to be on the show. The girls compete make it to level eight, went and split a quarter million dollars, and that next year we built 11 Angel House Rescue Orphanages. In, in that moment, they turned it from a one-hour to a two-hour primetime special. Eight and a half million households viewed the vision of Angel House, and God began to breathe on it. We sat with our partners, and I told, I told our primary partner, Stephen Chidibabu, don't you love those names? I said, Mr. Chidibabu, I don't care if it takes my life, my whole life, and or the life of my children. We will build 100 Angel House Rescue Orphanages in this nation, not knowing that in the five-year anniversary, we'd build the 100th home. And like you heard from Andy, we'll have over 4,000 children living in over 170 homes as of this June all across India. I think the most powerful scripture in the Bible is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, where, where Paul s says something so profound, so striking. He actually prefaces it with three separate introductions so that we believe he means what he actually says. Introduction number one, I speak the truth in Christ. Introduction number two, I'm not lying. Introduction number three, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now look at what he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For if I could, I would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Paul says something here I couldn't imagine saying. But he says, if it were possible, I would be cut off from Christ. I would give up my salvation if one more in my nation or in my generation could be saved. See, herein lies the secret to Paul's ministry. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. In other words, the pain I feel in the inside simply never goes away. What is anguish? Anguish is the pain of your passion. And Paul says, I feel this pain and I live with it every single day. And I do anything up to giving up my salvation if one more 
could be saved. I often wonder what it was like when Jesus was surrounded by the multitudes. And the Bible says the crowds pressed. And he was moved with compassion. I wonder what was happening inside of him that nobody else was feeling. Maybe the disciples, when they saw the needs, were almost overwhelmed and even annoyed by the press of the crowds. But something was happening in Jesus that wasn't happening in the rest of the disciples. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. Somewhere in the depths of who he was, there was a stirring, there was a churning, there was an ache, there was an anguish, and something was happening in the Lord where he said, I must do something about it. See, for all of time, the selection process of God has remained the same. He's always chosen the few, not on what we have to offer him. The Bible says the strength of man is the weakness of God. The wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. What you have to offer God doesn't impress him, and what you don't have doesn't intimidate him. More than anything else, he's looking for your passion. He's looking for your heart. He's looking... For you to participate in his anguish, in the pain of his passion for lost humanity. Think about the calling when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. God says, Jesse, you've mourned for Saul long enough. Fill your horn with oil. Go to the house of Jesse. The future king of Israel is there. And you know the story well. He fills his horn with oil. He goes to the house of Jesse. And he declares the word of the Lord. He says, Jesse... Present your sons. And you know the story. Jesse calls forth his boys and lines them up and points to the eldest and says, Samuel, I assume this is the next king. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He has natural leadership capacity. He must be the future king. They say, no. The prophet says, no, the Lord's rejected him. Okay, then my second born. Look at him. Broad shoulders. He, he has clear eyes of vision. This must be the next king of Israel. Samuel says the Lord's rejected him. My thirdborn, no. My fourthborn, nor my fifth. Finally, Samuel must insist, Jesse, do you have any more boys? You know the story. He says, well, we do have one, but he's a musician. He dresses funny. Honestly, we leave him outside with the animals. They say, bring him here. They run out to the fields, bring the young boy before the prophet. And the moment... Samuel lays eyes on young David. He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he pours the oil on David, symbolizing the Holy Spirit coming upon his life. And God establishes David's throne unto the coming of Jesus. And throughout all of time, God's qualifier, God's great qualifier has always been heart. Has always been passion. That's why when people ask, how do you do One Nation One Day, or how do you do Angel House, I can usually say, or how did you do it, or what was your journey, I can usually say, I don't know. All I know is that there was a burning passion, and there is a burning passion on the inside. And when your intention is clear, when your, vi your, your, your passion is clear, your how-to will emerge. When your conviction is there, when your will is there, then there's a million ways to get you 
to where God wants to take you. The how is the easy part. The how is the is the is the no brit the how is the, the easiest part for God. I think he often waits to get us into a place where there is a conviction and a passion and a stirring and an anguish and a disposition that says, Lord, however, wherever, whenever, I'm going to simply make myself available. And God begins to say, watch me, watch me make you capable. Watch me add my strength to your weakness. Watch me move you to where you couldn't move yourself. Watch me bring you before kings. Watch me open doors no man can shut. Watch me put my words in your mouth. Watch me put you in the right place at the right time again and again and again and again. Watch me navigate you. Watch me divinely lead you, guide you, and direct you. Watch me give you creative thoughts. Watch me give you inspiration. Watch me give you a battle plan. Watch me give you the blueprint of heaven. Watch me give you a strategy. Watch me cause you to, to, to become a magnet for resource. Watch me do it. But first, can I find that core? Can I find that heart? Can I find that willingness? Can I find that pain? Can I find that passion? Can I find that disposition? Because if I can find that, I'm going to take care of everything else. Amen. I'll say this. I don't believe we've simply entered into a new season as the body of Christ. Because a season is a glimpse of something we've seen before. Every springtime, summertime, fall in Michigan, we always knew what to expect growing up. We always knew the winter would be dreadfully cold. The summers would be hot. We knew what to expect because we'd lived through them before. I don't believe we simply have entered into a new season. I believe we've actually stepped into a new era. And in this new era, God is moving on his people and through his people like never before in human history. And one of the declarations we've been making as a ministry is we believe that we've just now stepped into the best decade of ministry history since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe we've actually stepped into it right now. We've stepped into the best decade of ministry history. And I'm telling you, you've picked no greater time to set your life apart for the eternal purposes of God. You coming to YWAM, you coming to Fire and Fragrance, you making yourself available is actually the most... Never before in human history could you reach the world with a click. Never before in human history could you traverse the globe in a day. Never before in human history could we, could we do and access humanity like we could right now. And you and I get to be alive in this moment. You and I get to be alive in this moment when, when the body of Christ is uniting in unprecedented ways. This is the greatest moment in human history. And you picked the time to say yes. You picked the, turn to your neighbor and say, you picked the right time. I don't know what expectations that you have for the next 10 years, the next five years, or what you could potentially see yourself doing. I want you to get an image right now of God erasing the whiteboard saying you have no 
idea. You have no idea what I'm about to do. I'm about to breathe on your life. I'm about to move you to places you never dreamed possible, move through you in ways you never dreamed possible. I'm about to cause you to be a voice to nations. Amen. Would you jump to your feet with me this morning? I want to be clear. God knows exactly who as few were 200 years ago. He knows exactly who as few were 50 years ago and 10 years ago and last year. But there's only one question on the mind of God, and that is, who are my few right now? Who are my few who are going to give up their life for the first half of Jesus' statement? This vast harvest would you place one hand on your heart lift one hand to heaven this morning just say this with me say lord jesus we make ourselves available however wherever whenever here we are here am i Send me. me. I will go. I will will speak for you. I will will be your hands. I will be your your feet. I will be your your voice. voice. Now for a moment between you and God, make it real. Just begin to pray your own prayer. Say, Lord, I want to be one of your few in my generation. When I'll see you face to face when you'll be issuing rewards, when you'll look at my life. I want to see the world differently as ready. I want to lose my life so that I can find it. I want to love until it hurts. I want to participate in the pain of your passion. Just in your own words, begin to say it to him this morning. Lord, make us one of your few in this generation. Lord, make us one of the few. We choose to exchange our days for this vast harvest. For the salvation and transformation of entire nations and people groups, Lord. However, wherever, whenever, Lord. We entrust our future to you. We entrust our days to you, our lives to you. In Jesus' name.
Everybody said amen. amen. You guys enjoying your pretzels and hummus? <laughs> you guys have premier snacks around here. I love it. I think this would be the first time I ever preached to people as they're eating hummus. This is awesome. Well, for your benefit, I always like to start with the photo of the boys. <laughs> There's them in Christmas 2017. Jude and Mason, the best in the world. You guys have got to be the best looking group of missionaries I've ever seen in my life. Turn to your neighbor real quick, just say if it wasn't for you. I'd be the best-looking missionary for sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hear the poke bowls are good here. Is that true? Are we getting those for lunch, bro? You're going to show me how to do it? All right, sweet. <clears throat> well, this is going to be fun. I'm going to um, add a few extra stories in for you guys today. Is that okay? I'm going to go a little deeper. Is this being recorded? We might do some editing after, so don't send this one live yet, all right? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you that eye has never seen, ear has never heard, it's never entered the heart of humanity which you've prepared for us in this place that love you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for continuing to teach us, Master Teacher. Empower us. Inspire us. Move us in this place, in Jesus' name. And everybody said... The title of my message in this second session is Break All the Rules. Somebody say it. Break all the, One more time. Say break all the rules. I don't know about you, but I never... Give this woman a big, big hand clap. How many people are grateful for legal drugs? The, Starbucks, the official sponsor of our session, number two. I don't know about you, but I never get overly inspired or excited when I hear about more rules. Anybody with me? I grew up going to a small Catholic private high school, and every single year the teachers or the principal would distribute the student handbook, and I always dreaded that day because it seemed like it got thicker every single year, and we'd learn about all the rules. And I'll, before I go any further, give a quick disclaimer. When I'm talking about breaking rules this morning, we're not talking about breaking the law or breaking the Ten Commandments, God's moral. Obviously, we love those laws because they lead to life. When I talk about breaking rules this morning, what I will be specifically referring to are cultural and societal norms. I'm going to talk about the expectations of the people around us. I'm going to talk about the limitations that we subconsciously or consciously place on ourselves. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he was the ultimate rule breaker. In fact, everywhere he went, he was constantly breaking rules. One dark stormy night, the disciples were out at sea, and off in the distance, they, see, they could see the image of something moving towards them. Suddenly, they discovered that this is actually a man, and actually, this was Jesus, and he wasn't swimming in the water. He wasn't even riding in a boat. He's walking on the surface of the water. Now, 11 of the 12 disciples are freaking out trying to process what they're seeing. 
But one of the disciples is quiet. And the reason he's quiet is because there's a question racing through his head. If the rules don't apply to Jesus, I wonder if the rules don't apply to me. And he asks the Lord if he could step out on the water without any hesitation. Jesus invites Peter to come, step out on the water, and Peter begins to walk on the water, breaking the rules with Jesus. Now, apparently, Peter grows accustomed to his newfound rule-breaking lifestyle. Because just a couple of weeks after Jesus' ascension, he's walking by the city gates and he encounters a man paralyzed from birth. And you know the story. He tells the man, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have I do give you in the name of Jesus. Stand to your feet. And this man who was lame from birth jumps to his feet and begins to run through the streets of the city. News begins to travel. Peter doesn't live confined by the same rules as everybody else. And so they say, Peter, we recognize this about you. So here's what's going to happen, Peter. When you come to our city, we are going to pull our sick from their homes and we're going to line them in the streets. And Peter, we recognize that you're not like everybody else. So we don't even need you to pray for our sick. In fact, Peter, we don't even need you to lay hands on your, our sick. We recognize you carry such a dimension of God's glory. All we want you to do is walk down the street. And the scriptures record that as Peter simply walked down the street and his shadow touched the sick, people were being healed and set free from demons. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus makes a statement. He says, truly I tell you. Now whenever Jesus has to preface one of his sayings with the words, truly I tell you, it's because he knows we'll probably have difficulty receiving what he's about to say. So he says, let me be clear on this. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would obey you. Nothing would be impossible for you. Now, you don't have to have a graduate degree in geological studies to know that mountains don't just automatically relocate themselves, right? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you have the smallest amount of faith, and, and, and not just like a seed, but actually a mustard seed, which is the tiniest of all seeds. You see that mountain over there? It has to adhere to your voice. In other words, Jesus extends an invitation to every single one of his followers, to every single one of his followers, to all of time, to enter into a lifestyle where the impossible and the possible are the same to them. To upgrade their standard of living to a place where the rules don't apply to them. And really the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a collection of stories of very ordinary people who discovered this secret that they don't have to live confined by the same rules as everybody else. And this morning in our final session, we're going to simply take a walk through my favorite, the first part of my favorite book and chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going to leave you with some homework tonight. I'm going to ask you before you go to bed tonight to finish reading Hebrews chapter 11 and find yourself there among the rule breakers. Will you do that tonight? Let's begin Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. 
Now, I'm so grateful that the writer of Hebrews doesn't just dive right in and tell us all the amazing things faith will create in our lives without first beginning with this simple, straightforward definition. He says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Now, look this way for a moment. This right here represents your life today. This represents where you're at in your calling and destiny right now, where you're at in your employment situation right now, where you're at in your relationships right now, everything happening in your world right now. If you take a walk over here, this represents your desired future. This is where your destiny is complete, your calling fulfilled, the secrets and desires of your heart, maybe the things that you've never shared with anybody ever before are finished. This is your place of promise. Now let me tell you what rule breakers do. Rule breakers regularly leave their present and they take a walk over here to their desired future. And they stand in this place and they take the time to envision and imagine what it would be like. But they don't stop there. They actually begin to capture everything they can see and feel in this moment. And then they drag it from their future all the way back here to their present. Until they have virtually the identical excitement and emotion that those things in their future are already theirs right now. See, rule breakers have a problem. They have so much hope, they don't know what to do with themselves. In fact, they wake up in the morning with so much hope, they can hardly stand it. Rule breakers carry the confidence that what they hope for will actually happen. For rule breakers, the future where their dreams live is more real to them than the concrete reality around them. Number one, rule breakers carry the confidence that what they hope for will actually happen happen. I'll never forget in our little office in Rochester, Michigan, when it was myself and two full-time staff. We were a staff of three. I must correct you, Andy, not four. We were a staff of three with an intern. And we were sitting in our little office, and I said, that's true. They are real people, too. <clears throat> Good word. They are real people. So we're sitting in our little staff, and I said, guys, we're going to take a walk three years into our future to what I called our perfect day. And I said, Gabe, you're going to be on one side of the country. I said, Matt, you're going to be on another side of the country. And I, and I said, I'm going to wake up that morning. You're going to call me. You're going to say, Dominic, you won't believe it. All the churches on this side of the nation are uniting. You're not going to believe, wow, let it rain. This is how you do it. It's awesome. I said, I'm going to call you in the morning. You're going to say, Dominic, you won't believe it. All the teams have moved through the week flawlessly. Everybody's ready for the stadium outreaches. And, you're gonna, and we literally walk through every single moment of our perfect day three years into the future. And we begin to envision what it would be like from that small place. Rule breakers carry the confidence that what they hope for will actually 
happened. Let's continue in Hebrews 11 to verse 4. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us. Number two, rule breakers still speak even when they're dead. Isn't it amazing that Abel Abel lived thousands of years ago, yet this morning in Kona, Hawaii, under this tent, we can still hear his voice. When you purpose in your heart that you're not going to live confined, trapped, bound by the same rules as everybody else, your life begins to communicate a message for future generations. You begin to create a legacy that speaks long after you're dead. See, choosing to be a rule breaker isn't just about your life, and it certainly isn't just about this moment. It's about your children and your children's children and their children. It's about you ushering in a new era of rule breakers. A couple of years ago, my grandfather passed on to be with the Lord, and when he was 35 years old, he was married with five kids in business with his brothers. On the surface, everything in his life looked pretty good. But what most people didn't know is he was a prisoner to a 20-year-long gambling addiction. In order to feed the addiction, he'd stolen from his company, stolen from the brother, his brother, gambled literally his last dollar. One moment in a place of total desperation, he crumbled to his knees on his living room floor, and he called out, to God. He said, God, if you're real, save me. Two weeks later, two ladies came knocking on the front door of his house and invited him to a church in their community. He decided he would try it. He went back that Sunday night, responded to the altar call. From that day forward, never gambled another day in his life. He was an alcoholic, never drank another drop of alcohol, never struggled, had a total and complete life transformation. For 50 years straight, he read the Bible one hour every day, never missed a day. He became one of the most respected business leaders and and Christians in in our city in Metro Detroit. And although he's not still here, I although he's not here anymore, I can literally still hear his voice. And when you purpose in your heart that you're not gonna be confined by the same rules as everybody else, your life creates a legacy that communicates long after you're gone. Continuing to Hebrews 11 to verse 7, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Number three, rule breakers prepare for the impossible with only a word from God. I often wonder what that conversation between God and Noah must have been like. Where God says, Noah, I want you to build a boat so gigantic it could contain two of every species on the planet. Or, Noah, I've I've seen the wickedness and sin in the earth, evil so pervasive, I'm hitting the reset button. I'm starting over. And Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth with the flood. And you got to think if you're Noah, you're probably thinking to yourself, God... You know that I love you and I'll do whatever you ask me to do, but what is rain and, and 
how could, how could I actually build a boat that animals would walk into? But you know what's amazing? He begins to build with only a word from God. In fact, for 120 years, he gives his life to building this boat. And most scholars believe he and his family sit on this boat for seven days before the first drop of water falls from the sky. Now, I want to say number three, rule breakers prepare for the impossible with only a word from God. For the first four or five years in our ministry, we basically copied and pasted what we saw previous generations do in mass evangelism. We would go into a city, try to work with all the local churches in that city. We'd rent a neutral venue like a stadium or a plaza with the goal of seeing 10% of that city's population come to the stadium. So if the city had four or 500,000 people, we'd want to fill the stadium with 40 or 50,000 people. And then we decided to bring missions teams with us to go to every school in the city. But every time I would get on the plane and go home, I felt such a, a dissatisfaction in my heart, a, a stirring that there had to be more, that the gospel deserved the attention of this entire nations, that God wanted to release a new blueprint for a new generation, that surely there could be something that would be so impacting the world couldn't ignore the transformation. And out of those questions, God began to stir my heart for, became, for what became One Nation One Day, and I'll never forget at 26 years of age, finding myself in the president of Honduras, his office, and saying to the president, Mr. President, I know your nation is in pain. Unemployment's over 40%. They're calling this the world's murder capital because of the homicide rate. There's been a great division across the nation since what many called a coup in 2009. But what if in part Isaiah was speaking to this moment in your history when in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 8, the prophet Isaiah asked the question, can a nation be saved in one day? I said, Mr. President, what if all of Honduras could be changed, could be healed, could be saved in one day? And I said, we have a vision called One Nation One Day that springs from this scripture. But I said, Mr. President, we will only proceed if you'll agree to these five things. Number one, Stand with me on Saturday, July 20, 2013, and together from the nation's capital, we'll speak to the entire nation. Number two, pass legislation through your Congress, calling One Nation One Day an official national holiday. Number three, open up every public high school in the nation so that our missions teams could come do a one-hour school-wide assembly with an altar call. Number four, open up the ports. Allow us to ship 18 container loads of humanitarian aid and books without any taxes or hang-ups at the borders. And number five, and of course this was the big request, give us the 18 largest stadiums in the capital cities of all 18 states at no cost to us and help us call the nation to their capital cities. Now we didn't know what the president was going to say. But at the conclusion of the meeting, he signed a resolution committing to those things. It was, it was an incredible moment. When we had the time to go sit with that president, I thought, who should I bring with me to the meeting? And I thought, I'll bring my father-in-law. He's 60 years old. He's been a pastor for 40 years. He has silver hair. He's one of those wise, methodical kind of leaders. He'll be the perfect person to be in the room. 
we stepped out of the meeting. I said, Pastor Dennis, could you believe what the president just committed to? I literally wanted to do backflips down the street. I said, this is, that went better than I could have dreamed. Can you imagine what he committed to? My father-in-law takes a deep breath, puts his hands on my shoulders. He says, Dominic, I know you're excited about what the president just committed to, but do you realize what you just committed to? He said, you just told that man you're going to bring 2,000 missionaries to his nation. He knows that the largest team I'd ever brought was 200. And to bring 200, I invited everyone I'd ever met in my entire life. He said, you just told that man you're going to do 18 simultaneous stadium outreaches. He said, I can't even wrap my head around the logistics of that. He said, why don't you start with two at a time? Or three at a, you told him you're going to do 18 in the same moment in the same day. Then he said, you told him you're going to bring 18 container loads of humanitarian aid. How are you going to procure millions of dollars in aid and then raise the money to get it down? Suddenly, I felt the weight of the world falling on my shoulders. But you know, we believed we'd heard from God. And we began to prepare. I remember calling all the commercial airlines, American and Delta and United and all the rest of the Latin airlines and saying, we want to bring this group to Honduras. Can you accommodate us? They said, we're sorry, Mr. Russo. We're not going to modify our, our planes in peak travel season to accommodate your group. So I started calling all the charter companies, one after another. Not one of them would return my phone call. Finally, I found a company that owned the massive Boeing 747 aircraft. And I told them, we want to charter this 747. They said, Mr. Russo, how many missionaries do you have registered today? I said, well, we have 500, but we just know we're going to bring 2,000. With only a word from God, we began to negotiate the terms of the contract, even lay down deposits, securing the aircraft, believing that God had spoken to our hearts. I'll never forget that moment as I sat there on the front of the 747. We have a picture of it with Lindsay, with the largest missions team in history, filling the plane. They said, the flight attendant said, Dominic, do you want to pray before we take off? And I said, first of all, I've always wanted to talk on one of those things. And <laughs> said, Lindsay, thinking to myself, we've not only filled this plane, but we're going to fill it three times. It's going to shuttle three times, bringing the largest missions team in history. We've maxed out every commercial flight into the nation. I said, I remember being so nervous to pay for my flight, the cameraman's flight, and your dad's flight to meet with the missionary two years ago. And here we've just wire transferred seven figures to charter a 747. I said, Lindsay, we will never be confined by the same rules ever again. In the span of that week, the team mobilized, reaching 1.1 million people face-to-face -face with the gospel. Our advertising filled the nation, but there was not a picture of myself, not a picture of a band on a single banner. Simply the question, can a nation be saved in a day? And we had 470,000 people fill the stadiums out of a passion not to see a man or hear a band, but for national transformation. And we began to declare that Saturday, July 20, 2013 would be the first day of the new Honduras. One year later, I'm sitting in the, president, the new president's office, President Juan Orlando. And at the time of One Nation, one day he was the president of the Congress. He said, Dominic, I was there in San Pedro Sula in the Olympic Stadium. And these were exact words. 
He said it was the most spectacular moment in the nation's history. He said violence has diminished by 38.2% nationwide. For the first time in 25 years, we've had no missed classes in our school systems. I don't know what you did with those teachers. And he said, we have a brand new nation. It was incredible. <clears throat> and I'll add in one bonus story. On the three-year anniversary in 2016, we're sitting again with the president and the first lady. And we said, we want to continue to disciple the nation and keep this nation at the feet of Jesus. And we said, we want to do something to speak to the women of the country. As, as we've been measuring the statistical change, we've noticed that domestic abuse has not gone down. It's actually risen. So we want to have a national campaign called, called Yo Soy Mas, I Am More, to speak to the dignity of women and to speak to this epidemic. The first lady was so moved. We were initially sitting with her. She said, my husband has to hear this. So now we're sitting with President Juan Orlando again. And we said, President Juan Orlando, this is what we want to do. And what I want to do is I want to go to the three largest stadiums and the three largest cities and make that like our studio audience and speak live to the nation. He said, Dominic, I love the vision. The problem is... Why would you only go to all three stadiums? You need to go back to all 18 stadiums. I said, Mr. President, this isn't One Nation One Day. This is a follow-up campaign. I said, we're preparing to go to Nicaragua next summer, and obviously we're leveraging our resources there. So, number one, I don't believe we could mobilize the whole nation in three months' time to all 18. And number two, we couldn't finance all 18, nor could we get all the speakers back in such short of notice. He said, number one, I disagree with you. He said, you guys have such a platform in the nation, such respect. I believe you could mobilize the nation again. And then he said, what if instead of bringing all the speakers, you simulcast it to the other 15 locations? I said, well, even if we did that at a bare minimum, if we leveraged $20,000 in production equipment for all the other 15 locations, that'd be like $300,000. We just can't commit to it right now. He said, well, let's meet again on Monday. We're sitting across the table from him on a Monday, and he said the Honduran government wants to fund the simulcast, all $300,000. And he said, I don't want to be on the platform. My wife doesn't need to be on the platform. Not one political speech needs to happen. I don't want this to be politicized one bit. We just want this message to be heard by the nation again. I'm pinching myself, and I'm, I'm texting Gabe and I, some of our executive team members. I said, is he paying for the discipleship of his nation? This is unbelievable. How many people know this is a new era? This is a new era. Rule breakers prepare for the impossible with only a word from God. I remember in the, in the entire journey, I had this phrase in my heart that my youth pastor said every single week in high school. He said, if all you have is a word from God, then a word from God is all you need. And I want to say to people all across this room and under this tent, some of you, that's all you have is a word from God. I want to tell you a word from God is enough. Begin to prepare. Begin to plan. Begin to strategize. Begin to allow God to show you what's next.
Continuing in Hebrews 11 to verse 11, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there was no way to count them. I often think about this conversation between God and Abraham, where God says, Abraham, I need to model covenant with a human being for the rest of the world as an example. And I need to start with somebody, and I'm, I'm wanting to start with you. So here's the deal, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make your name great. In fact, your descendants will outnumber the sand of the sea, the stars in the sky. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by you and through you, Abraham. How many people would be excited about a word from God like this? So Abraham receives this word with joy. But one year passes and his wife Sarah is barren. Five years pass, no baby. Ten years pass, she can't get pregnant. Twenty years, thirty years, forty years. Now Abraham and Sarah are physically incapable of reproducing. And God says, perfect timing. I want to say this, number four, rule breakers don't confine themselves to reason or their own small thoughts. See, you're, get, you're under this tent today, and we all know what the rules say. The rules say if you bro- grew up in a home that was broken, that you'll never be able to have healthy relationships. But how many people know the rules don't apply to you? The rules say if your dad was an alcoholic that you'll struggle with alcoholism, but how many people know the rules don't apply to you? The rules say if your family was in poverty that you'll never get ahead financially, but how many people know the rules don't apply to you? The rules say if you had a a massive tragic fall or sin in your past that you'll never be able to get beyond it, but how many people know the rules don't apply to you? If the rules didn't apply to Jesus, then the rules don't apply to you. We all know what the rules say about missionaries. The rules say about missionaries that we're supposed to not have enough. The rules say about missionaries that we're supposed to struggle. The rules say about missionaries that we're supposed to be in the background, that we're supposed to be in the dingiest part of town, that we're supposed to be in the background struggling and praying and hoping that our impact and voice will be heard. But how many people know the rules don't apply to us? About seven years ago, the... Lord began to put in Lindsay in my heart that we would be moving our office, our, our ministry headquarters out of Detroit to a city of influence, to a global headquarters and a destination location. Part of what we would do is start a missions college and other things, but we initially thought we'd probably be going to Dallas or Miami, and about four years ago, we knew we'd be going to the Los Angeles area, and naturally assumed we'd probably be in L.A. or San Diego, and about two years ago, 18 months ago, I should say, I was doing a random real estate search and found this commercial building on the Pacific Coast Highway in coastal Orange County in Dana Point, one of the most beautiful places in the world and certainly in America. I started calling these commercial real estate agents And again, I don't know if this is just an epidemic of mine, but none of them would return my phone call. Finally, I found a commercial real estate agent that agreed to let me see the building 
without proof of funds. Amen. So I, I, I walk into this building with Lindsay. We get into the second floor. We can see the ocean, which you guys know how, the, how that is here. We could see the ocean literally a block from the beach on the Pacific Coast Highway in coastal Orange County. Creative build-out. Needs nothing. Lindsay says to me, Dominic, I can't actually imagine anything better. She said, we are going to have no trouble recruiting students from across the nation to come here. Not only that, this, this place was built for us. I said, Lindsay, we have no logical path to acquiring this building. Up until this point, we've raised millions of dollars that's come to us and through us for the nations. We've never raised a penny for infrastructure. We've never had anybody express even the slightest bit of interest to give to something on an infrastructure level. And I said, this could just be a, a glimpse of what God will, might give us in five or ten years. This might be something that God's giving us, but it could take years. But how many people know something happens when the people of God place their feet in the place of promise? And we, we walk this building. I remember later that day walking on the beach near there, and I said, Lord, I'll do whatever you ask me. Would you please just tell me what you want me to do to make this happen? And I remember he responded to me, and he said, Dominic, delight yourself in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. Six months later, we were closing on the building. In the fall of this last year, we opened the missions.me college on the West Coast. And every day, I drive up to that building, and I say, the rules say we don't belong here. We're supposed to be an hour inland. We're supposed to be in an old, ugly building that nobody says that that's where they want the church. But how many people know the church belongs out front, not in the background? How many people know missionaries don't belong? and They belong leading. One of the statements that we make at missions.me is we don't believe the Great Commission was given simply so that the body of Christ would go but thus, or grow, but so that the body of Christ would lead. And, if, and I believe that the people of God... Uh, deserve to be in front. He told us, go into all the world and make disciples of nations. If we're going to lead, if I'm going to lead an individual on a discipleship journey, I'm going to have to lead that person. If I'm going to bring nations on a discipleship journey, then I'm going to have to lead nations. That means you and I belong in the office of presidents. You and I belong in mass media communications. You and I belong crafting educational curriculum. You and I belong at the head of boardroom tables. You and I belong in every place of influence. The body of the Great Commission wasn't given simply so that we would go, but so that we would lead. And it's time for us to shatter the religious rules placed on us by religious people and by society. And it's time for missionaries, ambassadors of the kingdom, to assume our rightful place as leaders and disciplers of entire nations and people groups. Is there any faith under the tent this morning? I believe it's time for us to break some rules. I believe it's time. And see, here's what's precious about a season like this when you come to a place like this. When you learn to get alone with God, 
and, and truly build your own private history with God and, and just begin to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know that I have the faith like Andy Bird or Lord, I don't know that I have the faith like the author of that book or Lord, I don't know that I have the faith like my grandmother. But Father, this is what I do have. And in this moment, I give you the innocent, childlike trust of my heart. You know, he turns back to us and says, that's all I need. Let me take you from where you are and lift you to a place where the rules don't apply to you. You know, God is, I, when I was uh, 18 years old at ORU, I used to go to the, to the house of one of the great pioneer mass evangelists of the 20th century, Dr. T.L. Osborne. He won about 300 million people to Christ throughout his entire ministry, most on the African continent. And for 50 years, he did mass evangelism. He was the predecessor of Reinhard Bonnke. Bonnke would, would probably tribute Dr. Osborne with the one who gave him the model. And I sat there as he was 75 years old. I was 18 years old, and he'd walk through his old stories. He used to do four and six weeks in a row of open-air meetings, starting with 300 people, would end with 50 and 80 and 100,000 people. He was taking me through because he had a, a habit every single night after his meetings to write down what happened. So he had volumes and volumes of stories. And he said, Dominic, when you pray, I don't want you to envision Jesus with his arms folded, sitting on the throne. He goes, I want you to envision Jesus leaning forward from the throne, waiting for you to simply ask. He said, only ask and I will give you the nations. And I believe this morning, even as we gather under this tent, that the Lord Jesus Christ is smiling. I believe his arms are extended. I believe he's leaning forward, wondering if there's just somebody in the room with the tiniest bit of authentic, childlike, innocent faith, with a mustard seed, the, the, the tiniest amount of trust that he can say, let me do the impossible in and through your life. Let me show up and show up. Let me do something that would demand I get the glory. I think it's, it's time for the people of God to stop doing simply what the world can do. The world's not impressed when we, when we, when we build bigger buildings because they can build big buildings. The world's not impressed if we can put out great uh, albums because they can put out albums. The, we need to do what the world can't do without God. The world can't see measurable change in a nation. The world can't bring violence down. The world can't bring uh, school attendance. The world can't do that without God. And I believe it's time for us as the people of God to do what the world can't do without God. We need to bring change to nations that's so undeniable that the world cannot ignore it. It's time for us to bring change to nations that place a demand on the people of God. I love what Jesus said. He said, I, this is how I want you to see yourself. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the world obviously wants us to be hidden, wants us to be confined into buildings. But how many people know it's our time to assume our rightful place as leaders and disciples of entire nations? It's our time to assume our rightful place as leaders 
and disciplers of entire nations to emerge from the shadows and take our place. Are there any rule breakers in the house this morning? Would you jump to your feet with me today? Jump to your feet all across the room. someone could come on the keys or the guitar, that would be awesome. What I want to do is I want us to take a moment and I want us to practice doing what rule breakers do. And I'm going to give you permission to take a walk in the spirit from your present and go stand in your place of promise. Even as you stood to your feet, for some of you, that the enemy already started to assault your mind and say, well, this doesn't work for you because don't forget about that and this can't work. What I want you to do is be aggressive in the spirit right now and silence every competing voice. And we're going to do what rule breakers do. We're going to go stand in our place of promise. Would you close your eyes with me all across the room? And just for two or three minutes, I want you to leave your present. I'm going to do it with you this morning. I know exactly what God's telling me, what he wants to see in the next several years. I'm going to go stand there in the spirit. You go stand in your place of promise. I believe every time we go visit the future, every time we go envision precisely what it is he's promised us, he smiles. Lord, I see it. I can see it. I can see it, Lord. Yes, for your glory. Yes, Lord, for your glory. The people of God must lead. The people of God must take territory. The people of God must just Give yourself permission for 60 more seconds. Go stand in the place of promise.